0: special shout out and huge thank you to those of you who came to celebrate my book launch party. It was so fun. Thank you. It was a blast. Thank you for coming out. Um, I have a few more books in the back at the connection table. Uh, The the book that I wrote just came out called Stay Curious, How Questions and Doubts Can Save Your Faith. And I just want to say for those of you who have been a part of Mill City for a long time, this book is possible because of who you are and the story of who you are as people who have chosen to stay curious about God. And been some people who have pursued the heart of god that is so enormous and we are finite people and god is infinite and all of your curiosity has really been an inspiration to me so thank you so much we're going to pray and then we're going to jump into god's word together father son and holy spirit we are so grateful just like michael said that we get to be here in this school we believe that our presence here has made a difference because you have worked in and through our community to love Sheridan School in your name, Jesus. And so we ask, God, that you continue to be blessing this school, that you continue to provide for them through us and through many others. God, we thank you for the hospitality. And we pray, God, today as we enter this space, that you would be the with us God, Emmanuel, Jesus, Holy Spirit. Would you come? Would you speak to each one of us? Would you allow us to be people who are different when we walk out today than when we came in? It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, my favorite thing to do, a little poll. If you had to get rid of one, texting, email, or snail mail, which one would you get rid of? Now, I do, there is a bet, kind of a wager going on between me and my husband, so let's just see how it goes. All right, who would get rid of text messaging? Okay, a few more than I thought. Who would get rid of email? JD, are you looking? (laughs) All right, who would get rid of snail mail? Do you have no romantic bone in your body? (laughs) Unbelievable. Okay, well, because I'm a super positive person, so JD said he thought more people would say they wanted to get rid of snail mail. I thought more people would say email because email's terrible. So, right, I know. But still, open all the ones that I send to you. Thank you, all right. Because I'm a really positive person, I'm gonna tell you the problems with all three of them, okay? So the first problem with text messaging is this. The thing with texting is, please, can someone invent the way that we can mark the text message unread? Right? Because then you got the text message, you saw it, you had every intention to respond to it. Seriously, you did. You were going to respond. And then it's out of sight, out of mind, you can't mark it as unread, and then whatever you're supposed to do doesn't happen. Text messaging is terrible. Okay. Next, email. Email is terrible, as you all just already agreed with me. The reason email is terrible is many reasons, but the worst one is the junk mail folder. Because it's trying to do something nice for you, isn't it? It's trying to say, you don't need to read this. And then when you are not at your cousin's baby shower, that's a big problem, isn't it? Right? Because you missed the important invitation because it went into the junk mail folder. So all the folders, I'm just not, not here for all the folders. It's just too many folders, the junk mail, it's terrible. All right, so then here's why snail mail is terrible. You all are going, listen, some of us are hopeless romantics. I wish we could cancel all other forms of communication and go back to the Pride and Prejudice days where we just wrote letters, handwritten, it'd be so beautiful. But here's why it's terrible. Right here, you guys, is all of the junk mail that we got in our house just this week, okay? And there was an invitation to someone's wedding in there that got lodged in our pile of junk mail sitting on the the counter and we nearly missed the RSVP. If you know who you are, we did RSVP last night, so we're good. But the invitation to something important was lodged in all the midst of all this other junk. All this other stuff, all these ads, all this stuff, people trying to get us to do all these different things. The junk mail on the counter, the junk mail folder in the email. And so maybe some of you would agree with me that it's actually all these other different forms of communicating is actually making it worse to communicate. Does that make sense to anybody else? I mean, I know it's maybe a little bit negative, but I would call it communication overload is what we're having. Communication overload. And I wonder if this is how God feels sometimes. All right, go with me on this. I wonder if God is trying to get our attention all the time, but it often goes into our junk filters of life. God is trying to get us to pay attention Jesus is sending us invitations to join in the kingdom, to join in what Jesus is doing in our life all around us, but it's getting piled up in the junk mail on the corner of our counter. And those invitations, we saw it, but we forgot that it was there. Jesus was inviting us to join in. And it's not that, we had maybe every intention to do it. Every intention to RSVP, yes, to what Jesus might be saying, but it ended up in the junk pile on the counter. And later we saw it maybe, if it doesn't all get put into the recycling. The communication overload of our everyday lives can cause us to miss out on God's invitations. God's invitations for us to join in. And I think that if we were to begin to accept those invitations and to respond, then our lives would begin to look distinct from the lives of the people around us. And I know that many of you are doing what you can to listen and to respond to the invitations that God has in your life. And when you do that, I notice how distinct your life looks compared to the people around you. I think when we listen and respond to God, our lives begin to be different. We begin to live distinctly. So today, here's the question I want you to ask. Andrew will put it up on the screen. Jesus invites us to live distinctly. I hope you'll see that today. Jesus invites us to live distinctly. Will we respond to that invitation and will we pass it on? So this is my hope that we can grab onto this today as we're in this conversation about passing on the things that matter to us the most about our faith. Will we be able to pass on what it looks like to live a distinctly Jesus-following life? A distinctly Jesus-following life. So I could have chosen many places in Scripture to talk about the ways that Jesus invites people into distinctly living in a distinct way. If you even, some of you that are familiar with scripture, maybe you can think through the gospels and think of the ways that Jesus invites people into living distinctly throughout the different stories and the different sermons that he gives and the spaces where we hear Jesus' words. But I decided to pick a specific place, two chapters in the book of Matthew, Matthew 19 and 20, And there's four stories there that I want to just go through and I'm going to just breeze over the overview of these stories and the reason I'm doing this is a little bit different than what we normally do. Usually we pick one passage and we go very deep into that. Today I want to show how Matthew, the author here of this part of this version of the gospel of the story of Jesus, Matthew is showing a theme over the stories that he's telling these stories in this order right here in this part of Matthew to to kind of showcase something specific. And I think one of the themes that he's trying to show is how Jesus invites the followers of his into living in a distinct way, distinctly different than the people around them might be living. And Jesus is doing that for very purposeful reasons, not just so that people can be different, but that they can be people who have the values of the kingdom of God, who have the order of importance that the kingdom of God has. I think you'll see that in this text. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew 19 and 20. And we're going to go through each story. And as we do, here's what I want you to notice. I want you to notice how hard of a time the disciples, or Jesus' closest followers, look at how hard of a time they're having trying to figure out these countercultural ways that Jesus is inviting them to live. Okay, I I want us to to point that out because... It's an encouragement to me when I see how the disciples have a hard time with something. It helps me when I realize how hard of a time I have sometimes when Jesus is inviting me to do something that seems very different. So notice their reactions to Jesus' invitations, all right? So we're going to start with story number one, and that is going to be in, in chapter 19, verse 13 through 15. And just for the sake of time, I'm going I'm to overview the stories and then read just one part of it, okay? So this is a story some of you might be familiar with. Some little kids are coming up to Jesus, and the disciples are like, Jesus does not have time. His precious time cannot be spent on these little children. And then Jesus says what has now become a pretty famous line in Matthew 19, 14, and he says this. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And then it says that he placed hands on them and he prayed for them. So can you see how Jesus is inviting them to live distinctly here? Culture at this time placed very little value on children. And why would that be? Because children couldn't do anything, okay? They couldn't contribute. And in that culture, that put them at the bottom of the totem pole, the bottom of the the list. The value system of that day put kids at the bottom. And so Jesus was flipping that value system upside down, wasn't he? By inviting the kids to give them his time, and not only his time, but to give them his blessing. And so Jesus, I think, his invitation in this passage is to see value in those who are often marginalized or seen as not to contribute much. Do you see how distinct this invitation is from Jesus that he's inviting the disciples into? Do you see how confused they are by it? Wait a second. He's putting things in a different order. The rich, the famous, the powerful, they can offer much. But Jesus says here, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven belongs to these little kids. And so I think that each of these stories brings up a question for us. So here's the question, I think, from story number one. What invitations might Jesus have for us to see value in the people around us? Perhaps the people were quick to dismiss their value or to put, we we have to be honest with ourselves, right? We, We do order people in a value system. We have a sense of who's most important to who's least important. What if Jesus is inviting us to live distinctly and to flip that upside down? Are there any invitations in your junk mail folder from Jesus to see value in somebody in a different way? Maybe it's even to bless them in a certain way, the way Jesus took the time to bless those kids. Okay, story number two. This one may be familiar as well. It's in verse 19, chapter 19, verse 16 through 30. There's this young man who comes up to Jesus. He's kind of an important guy. And he says to Jesus, how can I in- inherit eternal life? Notice how he asks that. How can I inherit eternal life? What commandments do I need to follow? What boxes do I need to check to be sure that I'm in when it comes to this whole salvation thing? And Jesus, I think Jesus is kind of messing with him. So, I mean, I didn't get that from a commentary, but I think Jesus is kind of messing with this guy. And so he names like half of the Ten Commandments. And he's like, all right, well, here, you can do this, 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 and this. And the guy's like, yeah, I did those. I'm kind of like, yeah, right, you did those perfectly, please. So Jesus decides to just go with it while the guy's like, yeah, I I did those five commandments perfectly. What else do I need to do? And then Jesus says, all right, listen, if you want to be perfect, and he uses the word perfect, if you want to be perfect, then you'll get rid of everything you have, you'll sell it all, and you'll give all that money to the poor, and you'll come follow me. Of course, the man has a lot of wealth, and so he's super sad because Jesus has asked too much of him. And so he goes away really sad because he thinks, man, I'm now not going to inherit Salvation. Now, what's so interesting is the disciples are watching this. The, the Jesus followers, his closest followers are watching this. And as they see this go down, this is how they respond in verses 25 to 26 of chapter 19. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. And they asked, well, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with human beings, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So in this story, we're seeing something interesting happen. I think it's tempting for us to say, okay, this story means we're all, if we really want to take this story seriously, we're all supposed to sell everything and give it away. Now that might not hurt some of us to sell some of our stuff, okay? But I don't think that's what this story is saying. I actually think the core of this story is about how badly we want to have control over everything that we have. How badly we want to have control over something as huge as our own salvation. And here this young man thinks that he can check enough boxes to be in. And Jesus is saying so clearly, what humans cannot do, God can do. Humans can't earn it. Humans can't check enough boxes. Humans can't wrong, make all the wrongs that they've ever done right. They can't do it without God. But with God, all things are possible. This is what Jesus is highlighting here. And so what is the invitation from Jesus? You can't earn eternal life. It's only possible with God. And as Jesus goes on, I think what he's asking of his followers, and what I think he was trying to ask of this man, is will you surrender all to me? Because God knew, Jesus knew in his heart that that man couldn't do that. It wasn't about that specific invitation, it was about the bigger invitation of will you have open hands with all that you have? And that man couldn't do it. Will you surrender all of it? You notice here that Jesus reminds us again that at the very end in verse 30, if you have your Bibles open right here, he says, but many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. It's so interesting, right? That doesn't make sense totally. Everyone who will be first will be last. Everyone who will be last will be first. What is Jesus doing again here? He's flipping the order of the value system, right? He's saying, you've got it backwards. You're putting value on the wrong things kind of a weird and cryptic fa- phrase, but I think that's what he's trying to say. Jesus reminds us that the value order of the kingdom of God is not the same as the value order of the little kingdoms of the world. And so what, what question does this story beg? Maybe you have a different question, but here's what comes to mind for me. How might Jesus be inviting us to, to surrender to his leadership in this season of our lives? Maybe you've wondered about surrendering your life to Jesus in general, and that's not something you've been ready for yet. Maybe it's time to wonder a little bit more about that. What would it look like to let go of what you have so tightly gripped onto in your life? To have open hands and to surrender to Jesus who's the only one, God who's the only one who can do the impossible in our lives. To set us free from the things that hold us back, from the brokenness and the sin and the stuff that holds us back in life. But maybe you're just wondering, is there an area that I've kind of let my hands like grip back onto again? I know for me, if I, if I look down, I notice things in my hands that I'm gripping onto. What would it look like to surrender those things in a new way? Okay, story number three out of four. Do you see this theme that's happening here? Story number three is in, in verse 21 through 16, chapter 21 through 16. This is a story that is a little bit more unfamiliar in my opinion. This is a, a little bit lesser known. Jesus is telling a parable. A parable is a story that's trying to make a point, okay? So Jesus starts off this parable by saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. Okay, so this man has a big vineyard. He's going out to find some migrant workers to come and help him in his field. And so he goes out early in the morning and there's some people there in the village center ready to come work. And so he hires them. He says, I'll pay you one denarius, which is basically one day's wage. And then he goes back at nine o'clock in the morning and there's more people. And then at noon and then at 5 p.m. and every time he brings back more people, to come work in his field. But he tells each one of them that I will pay you a denarius. So the people that started at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., noon, and 5 p.m. all line up to get their their day's wages, and they all get a denarius. The same amount, even though people worked for different hours. And you can imagine that the people who were there at 7 a.m. and 9 a.m. are upset because they have worked in the heat of the day and in the sun. And so this is what they say. Um, I want to read the part in verse 13 through 16. Uh, this is how this is how Jesus or this is how Jesus in the story he says that the vineyard owner responds this way, but he the vineyard owner answered one of them, friend I am not being unfair to you didn't you agree to work for a denarius, take your pay and go, I want to give the one to I want to give the one who was hired the last the same as I gave you don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money, or are you envious because I am generous. So the last will be first and the first will be last. There it is again. The last will be first and the first will be last. Jesus is talking about how the order is not the same in the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God as it is in the order of our world. I I think that Jesus is not, this is not a story about advocating for a certain type of pay structure. I really don't think it is. There's other places in the Bible where you can look to think about things like people's wages. I think he's telling this story for a very specific reason to point out this kingdom valuing system. That the kingdom of God is not about what's fair, but about radical generosity. Jesus' invitation here, I think, is something really important. That God is radically generous. And we see these two, I think, two invitations here. That we would receive God's radical generosity without comparing to other people. This is hard though, isn't it? Because we do have this part of us that just wants something to be fair. You know, we do have that part of us that just wants to say, well, I've worked really hard to be a a good person. I've worked really hard to, to serve a lot and to be somebody who's making sure I'm a part of the things I'm supposed to do. So when somebody over here gets the same amount of grace from God, that's not fair. But the invitation here is to receive that radical generosity from God, not to compare it to each other, and then to allow that radical generosity to be what overflows in our life, that we are invited to be radically generous to the, as we are citizens of the kingdom of God. Radically generous, not because people earned it, not because it's always fair, but because God's spirit is leading us to be people of radical generosity. So I think that, that this Question comes up in our minds. How might Jesus be inviting us to be generous with our lives? And I just think this is really distinct. When we talk about living distinctly, when we live in a world of radical spending, we live in a world of radically, deeply holding tight to what you have, of of bragging about what you've earned, living distinctly definitely would be living in spirit-led radical generosity. Okay, fourth story. This fourth story, right? I mean, these, are, these stories are right in order. So I think there's this theme here of the value system of the kingdom of God. These two guys, James and John, they're brothers. They're two of the 12 disciples that we often talk about when we talk about the 12 disciples. Um, and they're in a, in a scenario where their mom shows up, okay? Okay? These are supposed to be relatively grown men. We're not exactly sure how old they were, but their mom shows up. And I see this as kind of like a cringe-worthy mom, mom moment right here. And I'm not saying anything to any moms in the room. I'm just saying that when your grown men's sons are following a rabbi like Jesus, maybe this should not be what happens. So she shows up and she starts groveling at Jesus' feet and she bows down to him in this grand gesture. And Jesus, I'm not sure the tone of his voice, but he's like, what, what do you want? <laughs> lady. (laughs) And so she she looks up at him and she says, I want to know that my sons, my two sons, James and John, important men in your future kingdom, that one of them will sit at your right hand and one of them will sit at your left hand and they will be the most important in your future kingdom. Now she's pretty grossly misunderstanding what the kingdom of God is. We probably assume she thinks this is going to be an earthly kingdom that's going to overthrow Rome. So there's already that probably misunderstanding. So she's thinking they're going to be like soldiers, and that's not exactly what's going down. But Jesus responds to her and says, look, this is, my, this is not my, mine to decide. This is, this is the, my heavenly father. The, the father is going to decide who has these seats in the kingdom. And it's so interesting because you think that those two guys would be like, ooh, cringeworthy mom moment, but they actually just go along with it. They just go along with this like, yeah, Jesus, so will we be the most important? Well, you can bet what happens next. The other ten disciples, they find out about this. So just imagine you're one of the 10, you find out that these two guys' mom is trying to get them special treatment, all right? So this is maybe not shocking as to how these guys respond. I'm gonna start reading in verse 24. When the 10 heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Notice they're not indignant with mom, but maybe that's for good reason because they should have been like, you know what, mom, let's go. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be the first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Notice he doesn't respond to the crazy behavior that they're having, not directly. But then he gives a very, maybe the most direct invitation to live distinctly, doesn't he? You've seen other people lead in these ways that they've led. You've seen people lording power over other people. You've seen people who are exercising authority. And we know that Jesus is talking about oppressive authority over other people because they could. You've seen other people do that. And he says, not so with you. Or maybe it would sound like this. You're not supposed to lead like that. He's being really direct with them so they get the point, I think. This invitation is very clear. You are not to be leaders like that. And then, how does he say it? If you want to be great, you need to serve others. So, pretty clear here. How is Jesus inviting them to live distinctly? Jesus' invitation is to see service as greatness. I think it's important to note here that he doesn't tell them that wanting to be great is wrong. It's what they think will make them great that they have it all wrong. Jesus' invitation to pursue greatness in the way he's talking about is to say, yes, but greatness looks opposite from what you think it does. It's that flipping the script thing again. Now what you need to know about this culture is that it was an honor and shame culture as most Eastern cultures even today still are. And if you can imagine what an honor and shame culture is about, everything, the air that people breathe is about whether or not what they are doing or who they are is honorable or shameful. That's like how everyone oriented their whole life. And so here Jesus is saying to them, you might think that position and prestige and honor is going to be what makes you great. But what I'm actually saying is to be like servants. What do servants do? Servants do shameful things. They touch dirty, shameful things like feet and food that people have already eaten. That's the exact words that Jesus is using for the type of people who would be taking dirty food, people who would be cleaning dirty feet. And Jesus says to them, this is what it looks like to be great. And then he goes on to say that he is like a servant who does these things that people might have considered shameful. So how might Jesus be in inviting us to pursue greatness through serving others? I think that's the question of this story. How might Jesus be inviting us to pursue greatness through serving others? So this is, kind of a, this is kind of a big list, just in this few stories here. So I don't blame the disciples for having a hard time with these extremely countercultural invitations from Jesus. And that makes me feel a little bit better about how hard of a time I sometimes have with what feels like hard invitations from Jesus that seem really different I can see how they might be better but they might be hard you know and that's maybe why I let them pile up in the junk pile on the on the counter because it just feels like if I step towards that invitation it might be just a little harder than I want it to be but you know what these guys they get it because by the time we get to the book of Acts and the stories of the early church these guys some of these women that were with them too are leading the church in these ways that are so distinct you guys The stories we have from the book of Acts and other supporting texts of people who witnessed the early church talk about how these people are doing things like caring for orphans who are left on the street, often little girls who are seen as totally invaluable and they're bringing them into their homes. They are feeding people who are in need. They are welcoming people in who are often marginalized and seen as unclean. They are crossing cultural barriers that were never crossed. The early church was blowing people's minds with this. And they were elevating women and giving them places of authority that nowhere else in the culture did something like that. And this was huge. It says in Acts 2 that God brought more and more people around them every day. More and more people were joining in because they were living so distinctly. But we also know that they weren't popular with everybody, right? And I think that that's an important point, that Jesus' invitations lead us to live distinctly, whether it wins the approval of other people or not. And what I love about being your pastor is I get to have a front row seat to so many of your stories of how you're accepting these invitations from Jesus and you're joining in what God's doing in your life. And I am in awe. I'm watching so many of you living distinctly in these ways that are totally led by the Spirit. You're not being different just for the sake of being different, but you're stepping out in these ways where you're being radically generous with your time, with your energy, with your money, because God's leading you to do that. You're engaging with relationships with your neighbors or coworkers, even though they're super different than you and it's hard, but you know it's what God's heart is for you and their relationships. And people notice that. You're being people who sometimes switch jobs, even though it means less money because it means more purpose and meaning. You're people who are adopting kids and fostering kids and getting to know other people's kids because you say these kids matter to God. You're doing this stuff. And I think it's amazing. And so I look at all of that and I say, this is worth passing on. Being different just for the sake of being different, not worth passing on. That's just silly. But being different because we are responding to the invitations of Jesus is totally worth it. Giving Jesus the credit for why you're doing what you're doing in your life, totally worth it, totally worth passing on to the people around us, to our kids, to the people in our lives. I think this is so crucial. So let me just give you four Baby steps for the week, okay? Four baby steps for the week. Here's what they are. If Jesus invites us to live distinctly, will we respond and will we pass it on? Here's the four steps. Number one, take time to look through the junk mail in your life that causes communication overload. I don't know what that looks like for you. You maybe need some time at a coffee shop or on your own or hiding in the bathroom, whatever works. And you need to just say, hey, I need to clear my mind and my heart from this junk mail that's Clouding out, so I don't see these invitations from God. If you're feeling like that invitation isn't clear, that's probably the number one reason. There's so much else coming at us, right? Number two, look for the invitations from Jesus' spirit in your life. Just have a, a greater awareness. Turn up the notch on the awareness of how Jesus might be inviting you as you go through your normal day, looking for those opportunities. Number three, here's a tip don't be surprised if the invitations. Express a very different order of value than the world around us. Almost wonder if it's even from God, if it seems like it just makes sense in the world. If that makes sense. Just just keep that as a lens. Sometimes what God invites us into doesn't seem that odd. Other times it might. So just be ready for that. And then finally, take one step to respond to Jesus' invitation. Okay? At least like RSVP, yes. Okay? Just make sure like I did to the wedding last night. Hey, we're coming. Get it on the calendar. I'm going to try. I'm going to go for it. You'd be surprised with that sense of yes, that that response to Jesus could do in your life. I'm going to invite the band to come up, and I'm going to tell a final story just to close. I was hanging out a couple weeks ago with some friends who most of them aren't Christians. And um, I was having a conversation with them, and uh, this doesn't always happen, but the conversation turned to you all. They were asking me about Mill City and what you guys are about. And so I told them some of the stories that I just told um, about you and how incredible it is when you guys respond to God. And I said, I I think they're trying to follow Jesus in their life. And I was trying to be bold about sharing that. And uh, I know some of these people I was talking with haven't had the greatest experiences with Christians in general, so their perception of Christians isn't super great. And so I felt proud to share about who you are and what you guys are about. And as we were about to leave, me and my husband got up and we were about to walk away. And this guy said, hey, you know what? you guys are different. I would come to your church. This because I was talking about you. And then he said, you know what? You're not like people like you. <laughs> and I said, that doesn't totally make sense. And he said, yeah, it does. You aren't like people like you. And then he slaps the guy next to him, right? Don't you think these people he's talking to, they're talking about, they're not like people like them. And you guys, isn't it because the perception of what living distinctly as a Christian right now in this world means judgmental and hypocritical and being known more for what you're against than for what you're for? And so the invitations that we have to join in what Jesus is doing in our life is about an opportunity to pass on living distinctly in a way that looks like the things we talked about today, right? Seeing value in those on the margins, Being people who are willing to surrender and to let go and to not always need to control. Being people who are radically generous. Being people who are willing to have servant leadership, even if we are in positions of authority where we don't have to serve. And I think living into things like this is why people might say, you're not like people like you. And that's why someone said that about you. And so as we take communion today, this is an opportunity like it is every week just to come and to surrender again and to say, Jesus, I give you my life. I wanna give you all of it to the best of my ability. So let me pray as we all turn our hearts towards what it would mean to surrender just another part of our life to God today or maybe for the first time to say to Jesus, I don't even know what this means, but I wanna give you my life. It's the most important decision you can make. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are a God who's different than any other gods that have ever been spoken about, that you invite us to live in distinct ways that make your name great, that show people in a world of brokenness, shows them love and healing and generosity and favor that is undeserved. May we receive that favor from you anew today so we can pass that on, that love, that generosity of your grace to the people around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray.